The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody! Help! Not just anybody! Help! You know I need someone! Help! Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 339 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician retired from practice. Our topic today is qualitative research in schizophrenia. My guest is Dr. Chris Somerville. CEO of the Schizophrenia Society of Canada and the Executive Director of the Manitoba Schizophrenia Society. As a provincial and national leader and advocate, he serves on numerous, really numerous boards and committees. And as a family member and a recipient of psychiatric services, he sees mental illnesses as an issue not only in health, but also in social justice. Now, as for me, I have a special interest in this topic because my qualifications include a doctorate in biostatistics, experience in qualitative research, and a medical degree. But I also have a very special interest in this topic because of my family history of schizophrenia. That's about my first wife. She was a successful young physician who, after the birth of our third child, developed what was first diagnosed as postpartum depression. She eventually made the correct diagnosis herself, which was paranoid schizophrenia. One evening, she went for a walk. And this was the last time I saw her, because in her walk, she went to a graveyard and took her own life by overdosing on her medications. I often ask myself the question of whether I noticed or could or should have noticed anything different that fateful evening. And all these years later, I know that this continues to be an important question, the question of whether I should have seen something, seen a warning signal, because suicide is still one of the many serious consequences of schizophrenia. Now, so at this point, I'd like to explain what qualitative research is. It's actually what we're doing now. That's because everything I've told you so far about my family history of schizophrenia has already been recorded as I was sharing it with you. And in a few days' time, you'll be able to listen to the recording at any time on any day because the recording will live indefinitely in what's called the on-demand library. And with a very smart computer system, which I often use, I don't own it, but I use it, we'll be able to transcribe the recorded recording into printed words. The transcription then becomes the written version of what I said. And it too, the written version, can be stored in an on-demand library. In the on-demand libraries, the recordings and transcriptions will live indefinitely, which me- means that people can listen to us in future years as a way of judging how things have changed since we recorded the recording. Now, Chris and I are going to discuss the value of qualitative research, the kind of thing we're doing now, just to repeat, for the work of the Schizophrenia Society of Canada. So my first question to you, Chris, is this. Please explain your work with the Schizophrenia Society of Canada and what you've actually learned from this work. Chris? Thank you, Dr. Atherley. Uh, I've been with the Schizophrenia Society of uh, Canada for eight years now as the chief executive officer, and primarily my role is that of an advocate or an activist uh, in the midst of governing the affairs, financial and governance issues of the society. 
And as an advocate, I've been in the field of mental health for 20 years, and as you said, I am a family member, a brother with schizophrenia, and another one with bipolar disorder, a father who suicided as well. And what I've learned as an advocate is that schizophrenia is perhaps potentially the most devastating illness of all illnesses, and that's according to the World Health Organization. And one in 100 people will have some form of schizophrenia. There can be mild, moderate, or severe forms. And though there's no cure, there are effective treatments, and those effective treatments include medication, although about 25% of people will not respond as we'd like for them to the medication. But there's also cognitive behavioral therapy, self-help groups, and also healthy family dynamics. So schizophrenia is treatable. And I've also learned that recovery is possible, which means being able to learn, cope, and live beyond the limitations of the mental illness. In fact, uh, some uh, longitudinal studies have demonstrated that over half of people will eventually come to a place of clinical recovery or remission. But unfortunately, we do not have a recovery-oriented mental health system in Canada, though many of us, along with the Mental Health Commission of Canada, are advocating for such a system. Right. Now, I just want to add this. The very point about recovery, that recovery is possible, um, I'm interpreting it back to you to mean we're talking about recovery. That is, individuals who are able to make the best of their lives despite the illness. Uh, We're not necessarily talking about medical cures in the way that people might talk about a cure for cancer. And that is something I want to emphasize for a value, a potential value of qualitative research. Um, Let's have the voices of people who have recovered in the way you've described it. Let them explain what recovery means to them and how now they've reached the point where they can fulfill their lives or live their lives to the maximum fulfillment of their potential. So in other words, let's tell in the voices of the people who've recovered the inspiring stories of recovery. Now, Chris, let's, let me ask you this. Please explain the types of support provided by the Schizophrenia Society of Canada. Working with the 10 provincial schizophrenia societies, uh, we endeavor to engage in public education in terms of helping the public to understand all they want to know and need to know about schizophrenia and psychosis treatments uh, and uh, recovery. And then the societies also offer peer support groups, uh, groups for people living with schizophrenia or psychosis, and then support groups for family members, often called psychoeducation groups. And obviously we all engage in one-on-one consultations as there are hundreds of questions that come before us. For example, the Schizophrenia Society of Ontario has a, a program that's called Ask the Expert. Ask the Expert. And, uh, and obviously people are asking questions about how to navigate the mental health system. Uh, we offer workshops such as Strengthening Families Together, Your Recovery Journey, Eight Stages of Healing, And as well, we have a foundation. So there is the Schizophrenia Society of Canada Foundation. Uh, We have just less than, I think, $2 million in an endowment fund. And also the Schizophrenia Society of Ontario has recently begun a research program called the Psychosocial Research Institute. And uh, obviously quality of life issues would be involved in the Institute's work. Now let me, again, inject... Uh, qualitative research into what you've just described and that is let's just talk briefly about support groups. Um, Support groups talk among themselves um, and they are very supportive of each other and their stories can be very inspiring to others. Um, That is to say we can hear them, if we can hear them talking about the way in which their support group works and the way in which they support each other and the way in which they enable each other to be their supporters, that becomes very, very powerful and also an encouragement for more support groups to form around the issues. Second thing I'd like to say, asking the experts is profoundly important. There's no question about it. But also asking the other experts That is, the people who've been through the system, 
what their experience was. Sometimes they'll be critical and sometimes they'll be full of praise. By listening to them, we, you, the medical profession, governments, healthcare systems, can get a sense of what are the priorities of the people who are, first of all, living with schizophrenia, and secondly, the family caregivers who are caring for those people. Because, uh, and I think I learned this from you, Chris, a very high proportion of people with schizophrenia are living at home and therefore in the care of their family caregivers. And we are moving in, a, in the society generally to seeing family caregivers as more and more important. I mean, for example, the Mental Health Commission of Canada does in fact talk about family caregivers in a way that understands what they're doing. So we are making progress. But there's a step that I think now is needed, which is for my profession, erstwhile profession, to recognize family caregivers with family members with schizophrenia as members of what's called the circle of care. That is, they are people who are on the spot caring for the people who are patients for physicians. And if trust can be built, and if information exchange can be arranged in such a way that people are comfortable with it, then that's a way of the family caregiver helping with the caring by reporting things that should be reported, you know, deteriorations, the rest of it, by helping with the medications. That's another thing. When I say helping, supervising the taking of the medications and that kind of thing. And also by feeding back to the family doctor, because usually the family doctor is the first point of medical call, the very things that may need further investigation, further attention, further diagnosis. And also, we, we, I know I'm lecturing, but I'm an ex-academic, Chris, but here's is schizophrenic. People with schizophrenia don't just experience schizophrenia. They have all the other illnesses that every one of us has. They get the flu. They get stomach upsets. Um, they, they get injured. And all of those things become part of the care, which is so very important in the new system. And to hear about those things being discussed, I, don't, I, I think it, I put it this way, gives others ideas about how things can be done and improved. Now, We've come to the end of this particular segment, um, so I'm going to do what we always do, which is to take the break. And I always um, um, describe this as uh, paying the rent. So we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Dr. Chris Somerville. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment channels, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We will be back. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You 
are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week. Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Chris Somerville. Our topic is qualitative research in schizophrenia. Chris, now let's talk about the particular challenges that schizophrenia creates for the public and individuals and families with members caught up in the criminal justice system. So now let's talk about the um, challenges of what I call understanding and awareness creates for the public. In other words, what does the public know and understand or should know about schizophrenia? Chris? Within the public domain, there is unfortunately a lot of misunderstanding, misinformation, and misconceptions, and these lead to two things. One is a problem of attitude, which we call social prejudice or stigma, and then that leads to the second thing, which is that of behavior, which is discriminatory action, so discrimination. And all of these are based upon myths, such an example that many of the society still believes that schizophrenia is a split personality when it is not a dissociative disorder. Uh, one of the myths is that if you have schizophrenia, you're automatically violent when we know then that less than 1% of people with schizophrenia come in conflict with the law or judicial system. And then another commonly held myth is that uh, the only treatment for schizophrenia is medication. And while medication is one of the cornerstones of of, of treatment, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is important. Psychological support services are important. And some people also attribute uh, spirituality as part of their recovery process. And then the public also doesn't believe in recovery. That is, that people can really truly live a meaningful life beyond the limitations of the mental illness. Uh, Most people of all disability groups, uh, you have the highest percentage of people who don't work, and that's due to public uh, attitudes towards people with schizophrenia, when in fact most most people with schizophrenia would like to find meaningful work. So the results are that the public generally, I would say, are scared of people with schizophrenia because of high-profile cases that we hear in the news from time to time. So consequently, there's no social will to create political will. So we have a social tragedy that results in a political tragedy in that there's not the political will to create the adequate supports and services in the community. And when a person needs a hospital bed, they should be able to find a hospital bed. And so, consequently, as a result of these misunderstandings, misinformation, misconceptions that that lead to lack of social and political will, uh, there's a failure of early identification. People go a long time before they are identified as actually living with schizophrenia. And consequently, then, there's a failure of early identification and we know, or excuse me, early intervention. And we know that the earlier you intervene, the better the outcomes they are the better the outcomes for the individual. So I'm going to respond to you by saying that um, having people who have lived through the recovery phase and are talking about it and what they say about it is being transcribed into the printed word and from the printed word is being developed material for letters to the editor of newspapers, articles, and that kind of thing, where the message is fear, stigmatization, um, and discrimination should have no place in the way that the public and employers and educational facilities and the rest view people with this illness because there is such a thing as recovery. Um, That, I think, is profoundly important. And also, in a rather more negative way, there's something else that qualitative research can do, and I've said this before, is actually have people talk about what they experienced in the way of mm, uh, 
discrimination and stigmatization. In other words, how does it feel to be on the receiving end of those things when you're struggling to find a way to realize your capabilities and live as full a life as you possibly can? That's where I think qualitative research will have a strong place uh, or should have a strong place. Now, Chris, Chris, please explain the challenges that schizophrenia creates for individuals and families with family members caught up in the criminal justice system. Again, unfortunately, Dr. Atherley, uh, our largest mental health asylum, and I call it that on purpose, is the prison system. And uh, somewhere between 16 to 25 percent of people within our prison system, correctional systems, uh, has a diagnosable mental illness. And they face inadequate mental health treatments. In other words, uh, some of the worst treatment uh, regimens for people with mental illnesses can be found in the prison system because there's a lack of psychiatry, lack of psychological supports and services, and also how they are treated. They are often isolated as inmates and often segregated uh, as well, which uh, heightens and intensifies their mental illness condition. Uh, What we need are diversion programs, and diversion programs across Canada are limited, and that means to divert people from the regular justice processes and system and and hopefully being able to bypass correctional systems uh, by getting treatment. And one of the diversion programs would be adequate police training. We know that police training can range from two hours to 40 hours, so we have no national standard of police training. And so a police officer who is appropriately trained would, instead of taking a person to the station and booking them, would take them to the hospital. So that would be pre-arrest diversionary. But then for those who are arrested, oftentimes there's long waiting times in places called detention centers. And oftentimes they can go without medical assistance or appropriate medical assistance. But post-arrest, another diversion Uh, would be people being able to go through what's called mental health courts, and we have mental health courts throughout Canada. Uh, There are hundreds of them in North America, and a person uh, could be uh, assigned to a program for assertive community treatment or forensic assertive community treatment team in which they work with them daily to help them to reintegrate back into society as uh, law-abiding citizens. Chris, I just want to respond to your mention of detention centers. I'm repeating something I've learned through effectively qualitative research of the kind that this show is actually doing. And that is that um, I can't give you a number, but a high proportion of the young people, especially in detention centers are there not because they've been found guilty of anything, but because there's nobody in their lives who can afford to put up the money for bail so that they're let out until their trial, let out into the community and then until their trial is scheduled. Now, again, from the point of view of qualitative research, what I'm hearing is that people who believe that, first of all, spirituality helps, are able to go into the detention centers and provide support groups for that particular community, that is, young people, maybe with mental illnesses themselves, or maybe suffering from a situation in which there was mental illness, uh, can be supported, even though they're still in a detention center. Now, I'm going to come back to you with a question. All the things that you've said, Chris, just now in relation to criminal justice systems and the needs for change, how well understood are those things by the broader community in Canada, by the public, in other words? Chris? I think the public gets a sense from newspaper coverage that there are a lot of people in the correctional system that have a mental illness But, again, uh, there's not a political will at the federal level in terms of federal correctional systems and not the social will, again, to demand that um, we create more diversion systems and then also we just 
increase the supports and services in the prison system for those that are there so that they can have quality psychiatric uh, interventions. So the the, the public um, will randomly give some attention to these cases. We know the high-profile case of Ashley Smith, and that certainly did catch the attention of the public, but then that attention doesn't lead to social action. Now, so therefore the implied question back to me is can qualitative research in some way assist or promote social action? I know it's clear that I'm going to say yes to this, but just let me explain or give an instance of why and how. Um, this isn't schizophrenia. This is a man, a Canadian firefighter, retired, who's looking after his wife, who's well down the road with Alzheimer's disease. She is so far down the road that she really can't distinguish between the wash bowl and the toilet. I ask him to tell us how, what are the things he does to help his wife, to care for his wife. And he chokes up. Not because of rage or frustration or anger, but simply because nobody's ever asked him that question before, let alone on on kind of qualitative research type radio. Uh, That is to say, there was an emotion in all of this that was very powerful. And as the host, it's a difficult thing for me to do, I did not interrupt because you don't interrupt that because that's somebody speaking from their hearts. And so what qualitative research can do in a way that other forms of research can't do at all or so well is to portray the emotional components of all the things that you've been talking about negatively, certainly, but also positively. And that way, we can perhaps get through to the politicians, the decision makers, and the rest of them, that there is good work, first of all, to some degree anyway, going on, and more is possible if only they'd take some notice. Um, Now, at that point, um, I'm going to take the break as we have to, so we'll do that right now. This is Dr. Gordon Asley, and my guest is Dr. Chris Somerville. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Chris Somerville. Our topic is qualitative research in schizophrenia. 
Chris, now let's talk about the challenges that schizophrenia creates for the mental health care and social systems. Um, what are those challenges, Chris, that mental health care professionals experience in making diagnoses and prescribing treatments for individuals living with schizophrenia? Chris? Well, you can't make a diagnosis unless you see the person. And unfortunately, again, only one in three people seek help. And then on an average, it's about five years when a person uh, that does seek help uh, gets help. They can go about five years uh, before they, you know, see a doctor. Uh, And then the challenges are that there is no clinical test or no blood test, so to speak. And so the psychiatrist or doctor has to see presenting uh, observations, that is, they have to see hallucinations or and delusions, they have to see signs of negative symptoms in terms of uh, abolition, uh, loss of emotion, uh, difficulty with speech patterns, and then there's also the symptoms uh, of, of depression uh, that can be observed in many cases, as well as cognition problems. And then uh, that all causes the doctor to to determine, not have to determine, but to determine uh, what level of dysfunction or disability the person is at and what their prognosis of recovery might be. And then there's the challenge of finding the right medication because there's no one medication for all people, and that can be very challenging. And once you find the appropriate medication based upon symptomatology, you have to find the right dosage. Uh, that you, the dosage is high enough so that it kicks in to help the symptoms and not too high that it doesn't lead to side effects. And then that does lead to the challenge of monitoring, of monitoring uh, side effects. And uh, that often comes uh, into play in a challenging way in terms of compliance or adherence to medications. So a lot of people may not take their medication because of the side effects that they experience. Uh, doctors also are working with the family system and helping the family system or family members to understand the complexities of schizophrenia and how to work with uh, the individual family member. And if it's an unhealthy family system, uh, no matter what illness the person may be living with, that in and of itself presents certain challenges. And then there's the whole issue, Dr. Atherley, of confidentiality in which family members want to share information with and receive information back from service providers. And so there is a lot of confusion and consternation and aggravation around um, privacy acts and, and, and the whole issue of confidentiality. And then finally, one of the big challenges for every person as a service provider is that they have the task of creating an event creating an environment in which recovery can take place. In other words, to have that therapeutic relationship of one in which they themselves are not illness-focused but strengths-oriented and foster promotion through hope, choice, self-determination, optimism, etc. To what extent do you think, is or is it to a sufficient extent, that mental health care professionals and in particular psychiatrists are working with sufficiently with family caregivers, especially in the early stages of the diagnosis uh, and understanding of the particular condition in the particular individual. What do you think? Well, if you listen to family members, uh, they would say that that would be high on their priority, that they wish that service providers and physicians especially uh, would share information with them and talk with them about schizophrenia, what it is, and give some information about their loved one or family member. But unfortunately, um, I'm think that a lot of physicians think that they can't give the general information out because of personal health information acts, but I don't know of any personal health information act that prevents a provision or, or service provider from giving a general discussion about what a mental illness is and how a mental illness is treated and the complications that can be associated with a mental illness. You can speak very generically, although I know family members would like more specific information. Right. I'm going to make a suggestion now, see what you think about it. With the qualitative research that I'm talking about, 
I'm convinced that it would be possible to have a family caregiver and a psychiatrist talk on in the context of, say, this show. Um, those discussing those points, but in relation in a general way to the experience of the family caregiver. In other words, they have a conversation of the kind that they would have in the psychiatrist consulting room, except that now uh, by prior agreements and with a certain amount of adjustment of names and the rest of it, um, they're doing it for others to hear. Um, I believe and I want to know what you think, that qualitative research, particularly if we go into transcriptions and turn the transcriptions into discussion pieces or guidance lines and things like that, could help strengthen the idea of this bond, bonding between the family caregiver in a healthy family and people like psychiatrists and other mental health care professions. What do you think? Well, qualitative research, it gives flesh to the skeleton. In other words, uh, there's two different types of research. There's qualitative and quantitative, and quantitative is giving the skeleton to the answer to the research question. But then when you want the flesh to the skeleton, to put flesh on the skeleton to the research question, then that's where qualitative uh, research comes into play, and that leads that can be gained from narrative stories. Uh, anecdotal stories, and so as you collect uh, these stories, whether it be in writings or through support groups, as you've talked about, it becomes valuable information as as to the why and how of uh, the medical situation or problem. And in other words, quantitative research asks who, what, when, and where, and deals with numbers. Qualitative research answers the question of how and, and, and why as to human behavior, opinions, and experiences. And I think as the more we do this and the more family members are engaged in as active participatory um, agents in qualitative research, then valuable information will come out for health providers that will inform them in terms of how they can have a better therapeutic relationship with family members in terms of what families need in order to feel empowered themselves. And as they are recovering, they are recovering from the incidence of a family member who is, has, is living with a mental illness. Yeah. Now, just very briefly, I'm going to ask you a supplementary to that, and that's this. When family members are seeing what they think may be early warning signs that their family members are getting involved in risky behaviors or are in the early stages of psycho psychotic episodes, what you've just been describing, it seems to me, that is the use of qualitative research, would help in those kinds of situations where things can get very tense. What do you say to that, Chris? Well, certainly. I mean, one of the immediate challenges that a family member is dealing with is what we might call appropriate identification or what are they exactly dealing with. And so oftentimes family members will misinterpret signs and symptoms of mental illness, early stages of it, that is, as the person acting out, or some manifestation of adolescent stage, which in fact it's, you know, beginning of the prodromal period of schizophrenia. And then there's the challenge of early intervention rather than delaying. Uh, and oftentimes there's denial even by family members and certainly by the individual. There's no way that I have a mental illness because no one wants to be thought of being crazy and not bar or screw case or examples of that type. And then, you, in other words, people are dealing with stigma and self-stigma. Uh, because they know how the public feels about it. So often they don't know how to talk about it with their loved one. And, and then secondly, they don't know where to go for help. And then once they are getting help, uh, there are the challenges that the family faces in terms of adherence problems, often called compliance issues, because the person may be in a state of denial, uh, which may be due to the illness or just the natural phenomenon of there's no way that I could be mentally ill, and so I'm not going to accept it. And then dealing with side effects of medication. Um, and families are concerned about cognition problems, and so the, the best of the medications that we have really don't work all that very well on cognition challenges. 
And so uh, many families would like to see uh, more cognitive behavioral therapy services, but those are very hard to find. So overall, the family is facing what we call the family burden. And the family burden um, uh, consists of lack of awareness uh, by the public of how great the burden is on family. Um, the challenges of working with the health care system in terms of listening to the family and the family being meaningfully engaged in the planning and implementation and evaluation of mental health services. Uh, the family burden also uh, involves a respite or lack of respite for family members and, and what it costs, you know, what it actually costs mm-hmm. the family member and absenteeism from work. Now, we've reached the time... Uh, in this segment where we need to take the break. So we'll do that now, but we're coming back to some of these things uh, in the final segment. So this is Dr. Gordon Asley. My guest is Dr. Chris Somerville. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Chris Somerville. Our topic is qualitative research in schizophrenia. Now, Chris, I want to talk directly, or you to talk directly, about bringing qualitative research and its value to the Schizophrenia Society of Canada's work. So what do you see, Chris, as the challenges that have to be overcome in bringing qualitative research to the Society's work? Chris? I think, first of all, we have to realize that uh, though quantitative research is very valuable, it's not the only kind of research that is needed and we need a type of research that gives us interpretive analysis rather than just statistical uh, analysis, and that's what uh, qualitative research uh, does. And so the Schizophrenia Society could advocate uh, for researchers and institutes to do more qualitative research because we do need answers to such questions as to how do people experience health care the healthcare system. Uh, how do people experience uh, discrimination? What does it look like? What does it feel like? How do they recognize it? Uh, how do people uh, experience detention if you're held in a detention center? Uh, how, how do people experience recovery? I mean, what we've learned about recovery, for example, primarily comes from qualitative research in terms of narrative stories and what people have written about what has helped or hindered them in their recovery uh, experience. And then qualitative research would benefit family members uh, for certain in terms of helping us to understand much better the family experience, what it's like to be 
to have a loved one with a mental illness and the challenges of recovery and the challenges of working with the mental health system. So qualitative research would help us to find out why people behave in a certain way around these medical questions and challenges that we've been talking about today. So certainly the Schizophrenia Society of Canada could be an advocate. It also uh, could dedicate a proportion of its uh, research funds to qualitative research and psychosocial uh, research. And as I said earlier in the program, the Schizophrenia Society of Ontario does now uh, have an institute of psychosocial research, and certainly that will involve qualitative research. Okay. Now, I want to just um, introduce something here, and it sounds a little bit different, and that is um, the role of qualitative research is getting more and more attention. But there's always a question of which kind of organization should do this sort of research. And it seems to me that uh, the Schizophrenia Society of Canada is the best organization of all to be responsible for this research, partly um, because of privacy considerations, partly because of trust. You are, after all, the representative organization for the schizophrenia community, whether it's people who are living with the illness or their family caregivers. And also because... um, I'm going to be very straightforward here. Drug companies and government organizations um, have their ways of doing research and they may not always be as respectful of privacy um, as we would like them to be. And then the other thing just to say is that qualitative research in the way that I'm describing it is, I mean, frankly, it addresses the key point that talking is much quicker and much easier than writing. Not just for everybody it is. That is to be recorded and have somebody to um, transcribe it, uh, make it into written word. Uh, It's quick, it's effective, and it's a way of getting the words out without them being secondarily interpreted by other people. So you if I can put it to you in this rather arrogant and aggressive way, you, the Schizophrenia Society of Canada, at the national level, is the organization of choice for this kind of research. Now, my very last question to you is a little different again. What's your message for families, family caregivers, and family members about the value to them, them, of bringing qualitative research to the schizophrenia of Society of Canada's work. Chris? All those who are associated with the Schizophrenia Society of Canada and our provincial organizations, uh, we do have that mission statement, and we're devoted to that mission statement, which is to improve the quality of life of those affected by schizophrenia. And I'm absolutely convinced that the more we engage in qualitative research and the schizophrenia societies actually lead that work, it will lead to better interventions, better treatments, better environments for recovery, better outcomes, and better quality of life for all. And so... um, I think this has been a healthy discussion uh, in terms of of fostering the concept of, of qualitative research and the role that the Schizophrenia Society of Canada might play. You know, we're an organization of feelings, meanings, and experiences. Let me say that again. Our, our members and constituents have strong feelings and meanings and experiences are, are around this thing called schizophrenia and how to understand it and live with it. And qualitative research does focus on participants' feelings, meanings, and experiences. And the little that we have done, such as our quality of life report, which can be found at our website, uh, does demonstrate how people feel about and what meaning they bring and experiences they've had uh, to the lived experience of schizophrenia. I'm going to share my message for them. Um, Chris, um, for family caregivers, families, family members, about the value to them of bringing qualitative research to the Schizophrenia Society of Canada's work. I obviously wholeheartedly support everything you're saying. I'm going to add a couple of points. First of all, we live in an increasingly diverse population where 
more and more people, their language, first language isn't either English or French. It's some other language. For them, talking and listening are probably better ways of our communicating with them and them communicating with us than strictly through the written word. The second thing is, yes, quantitative research, the numbers are very important. The number of occurrences of particular type of schizophrenia and those sorts of things, uh, those, those particular types of research are fundamental, but they are not sufficient. That is to say, unless we get people to answer the question that I put to myself and continue to put myself and questions like it, which is, what did I miss something? Could the tragedy of my wife's suicide have been averted had I seen a warning, had I perceived a warning, had I taken the necessary steps? And only by asking people who've been through that experience of losing someone to suicide and talking about the antecedents, the things that went before, can we get a picture of what may or may not be warning signs? And I'm just going to very quickly, because time's running out on us, answer my own question, and that is, much as I rack my brains, I cannot recall, bring to mind anything that was different about that evening compared with previous evenings. Uh, now, I, I'm not inviting people to generalize from that, but what it does mean is that we may have to be coping with a wide variation in answer to that kind of question. And that, again, is where qualitative research comes in, because we don't just look at one answer or one percentage of answers. We look at what everybody is saying, and this is what you said, put it all together in a picture that now helps us understand the dimensions of the challenges that are being faced. Now, we've come, unfortunately, to the end of this important um, episode of Family Caregivers Unite. And Chris, I want to say thank you for being so open with us. You, you in that way, have exemplified, <laughs> may I say it, the qualitative research because you spoke as much from your heart as you did from any other aspect of your life. You've lived it, you know about it, and you see the value of the things you described. Now, I want to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And from our listeners, I'd like to hear about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. Our next episode will be First Nations Spirituality and Healing. Please join us. Same time, same spot on the Internet. Connect with you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again twice every week, Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until the next show, we hope our programs help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.